for uh, this opportunity to gather your name and to sing your praises, to study your word. We thank you for the Sunday school hours just completed. And we uh, just commit ourselves afresh to you tonight as we look in your word that your spirit might direct our thoughts, uh, our words, that they might be in accordance with your word of truth. And Lord, that we might apply into our lives. It's always our desire. Uh, Lord, we are not always uh, efficient in that, and we pray that uh, you might uh, work in us to make it our longing uh, to uh, bring our lives into conformity with your word. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. We come to chapter 22, and I kind of skipped a portion of this because I wanted to deal with it distinctly from what we had in the past. In uh, 1 Samuel 22, we have an introduction of who are going to gather to David's uh, aid, to his side. Uh, In verse 1, we have what we kind of expect, that when David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave in Adullam, uh, so when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, and so they are finally getting the, the message that David is being hunted by Saul. It finally gets word to his father's household. Now remember, they were all there when Samuel anointed David as king. So they know where, where David stands in all this, that he is also the Lord's anointed. Um, that he is the future that God has prepared for Israel. Um, and they, they had some strong words there in the Goliath narrative, but we find that their response very quickly is to respond, and by following David, they go down and they join him. And so we have his brothers, and, and they're going to show up now and then. Uh, one of David's brothers is going to uh, speak or be mentioned But we find uh, that they're going to join him. And so it's not just his brothers. It says all his father's house heard it. Um, They, the brothers specifically, went down there to to him. And so they're going to rally to his side. They know he's the anointed. They were there when Samuel did this act. They were familiar with this. And so among his followers are going to be his brothers. And if you think that's a light thing, Uh, One of his brothers is going to take on one of the giants later on. He learned a lesson from the Goliath narrative. And uh, later on, when when they rehearse all the exploits of David's great men, one of the great men was one of David's brothers, and he's going to take out one of the giants, one of the sons of the giant. And so um, these are not lightly regarded men. These are men of war. Um, They were in Saul's uh, army, remember, and now they're gathered to David um, his brethren. And so they're there, and uh, we we got a good start. So I got my family. Uh, these are men of, of experience in warfare. Uh, they're all older than David, so maybe they bring a little uh, maturity to the group. Uh, but they're there, and they're there, fascinatingly enough, to follow David. They're not there to uh, usurp his leadership. They're there to follow his leadership. They recognize that this is the Lord's anointed even though he's our little brother. And they've seen God's hand upon him. They know what God's intention is for his life. And uh, this is a theme, I think, in Scripture that you see uh, quite readily, that God doesn't always use the firstborn. Um, many times he uses the uh, one that we kind of don't even think about as being the one to be promoted forward, especially in that culture. So, in the verse 1, we're doing really well. Um, we've got David, 
his father's house, specifically his brothers joining him. We come to verse 2 and we say, oh boy, uh, and we're still okay with the first group. It says, everyone who's in distress is going to join him. And uh, that, we can kind of associate with that. Okay, they're having some problems. Um, basically, they're on the run. People that, that have nowhere else necessarily to go. Uh, the next phrase describes everyone who was in debt in the city or in the, in the nation. So we have those in distress, those in debt joining him. And, uh, and then we have the, the most difficult group is everyone who is discontented gathered around him. And, and literally they're the bitter ones. All the bitter ones of the nation come to David. And uh, we find out that, that when he gets this conglomeration, there are 400 men with him. Uh, and of course we can associate their wives. We know that their wives are traveling with them with their children because they're going to be uh, captured later on in the narrative we're going to find their wives and children being taken away and they have to go rescue them, remember? So the 400 men, he's not just hiding and caring for 400 men, it's 400 families. you got to think of it in that respect. Um, whether all of them had families with them or just were individuals, we have 400 men representing there and all that came with them. And he became the captain of them. Uh, but we want to consider what it's like to lead this kind of a group. This is a group who are on the run, who are running away from something. They are either running away from from uh, masters, uh, and this kind of gives credence to some of what is going to be spoken of by Nabal later on. It's like, you know, I don't need to give aid to, you know, these days, you know, servants just think they can run away and join up with your group. And that's kind of what it was like. They were kind of the rabble of the nation that uh, said, well, you know, he's being hunted, and, and maybe some of these people were innocent in it, um, but the likelihood is, is that many of these people were embittered and, and, and had created some of their own problems. We don't know. But we know that they're gathering to David, this sort. And uh, I think all of us have had dealings with this sort of people um, in our lives sufficiently. Maybe I have a, a little bit more so in the pastorate, um, because people come to you in this condition. They come to you in distress. They don't look for pastors when things are doing well. They just don't do it. They come to you when they're in distress. They come to you when they're in debt. And that happens in the ministry. And they come to you uh, when they're bitter. Uh, sometimes because they want uh, you to affirm their bitterness. Uh, sometimes because they just want someone to ream out and blame God for us. So you might as well take the, the, the pastor to do that. Um, occasionally they are there because they want solutions. So I'm not about to discredit these individuals as all uh, rebellious individuals, but we realize that these are people that Nabal himself doesn't think very highly of. When we get later on, they're going to be called, well, you're just the rebels. You're just rebelling against your master. And David, you've rebelled against your king. And is that true? No, it's a false accusation. Yeah, but we find that here's a group of embittered people, and David is going to organize them into an army. Uh, whether how many of them had military experience before, we don't know. Uh, we do know that his brothers had some military experience. We're sure some of these other men did. And in fact, they're going to be having some great exploits, but it's not based upon necessarily their history, but upon the fact that God um, is with them. And so we find that he has gathered together 400 
uh, that number is going to still grow. It's going to stabilize by the time we get to chapter 23. The end of chapter 23, that number is going to grow to uh, 600. And we're going to find it 600 all the way through the rest of the book. To the end of 1 Samuel, uh, David is basically left with 600 men. That's his, his, his group. They're not going to really grow in size from then uh, for the rest of the time. So where do the other 200 come from? So he's got 400 people who are discontented, bitter, uh, they're in debt, they're in distress, they've got trouble, uh, they've got a history. What about the other 200? Well, I think to find the other 200 men, we're going to have to go to chapter 23. Because we have 400 going into chapter 23, and we have 600 coming out of chapter 23. So we have to conclude that somewhere in chapter 23, a couple of hundred men joined up with him. And in chapter 23, David has given some word. And the word is the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and they are robbing the threshing floors. And that's the time to um, rob is in the harvest. And so the harvest has occurred. The threshing floors are active and working. And so that's the time to attack your enemy when they have their abundance and you want to steal their abundance uh, so you don't have to work so hard. And uh, so David goes and inquires of the Lord. Remember, he's got a priest with him now. He's got uh, the ability to ask God with, through the ephod that the priest carries that Abiathar has. Um, and so he says, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord says, go and attack the Philistines and save Keloch, save the city. David's men uh, say, wait a minute. <laughs> we didn't sign on for this. Here's their statement. It says, we're afraid here in Judah. We're all the hunted people. We have enough enemies. Why are we going to go over here and attack this group? Why are we taking on the Philistines when we're running away from some of our own people? We're afraid of people here in Judah where we live. And so uh, David's going to be a little bit responsive to them. Uh, he says, okay, I'll go ask again. And he asks the Lord again, verse 4, Lord answers, says, Arise, go down to Keilah, for the Lord of the Philistines in your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. And uh, again, the question is posed to God, can we stay in Keilah? Is this a safe place? And we talked about this last week, that now with the ephod, God reveals that no, the people of Keilah, uh, if you stay there, they will, they will expose you. They'll give you up to Saul. They won't preserve you um, as a city. And so uh, David says, well, i got to get out of here. And I'm not going to jeopardize these men like I jeopardized the priests. And so the best thing for me to do is to leave. Now, um, we have to assume that the majority men of Keilah would have done so. But by verse 13, it says, So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the exposition to get him there. So he leaves a fortified city, and we find him coming in with 400, leaving with 200 more. And I would have to conclude that there are 200 honorable men in Keilah that are disgusted by their own people, um, and they join him. They have reason to join him. Uh, they're thankful people that they have seen David's hand. They have gotten to know this is not a rebel who is just out there to serve himself. He has served this city. 
not to take the city for his own name, but to deliver the city from the enemies of Israel. And those enemies are his enemies still. That he recognizes he has responsibility to his community still, uh, to the cities of Judah. God has led him into that, given him victory. And he takes his spoil not from the people of Keilah, but from the Philistines who attack there. And so um, David delivers them, and I'm convinced that 200 of these men are joining him out of Keilah, out of a thankful spirit of recognizing this is not what the media has presented him as. This is not some rebel who is raising up a force against Saul. This is a righteous man on the run who is going to do noble and honorable things. And so one-third of his group, at least, are going to be men that are going to follow him, I believe, for that reason. They see that this is a man that is worthy of being followed, who has on his agenda doing what is right in the land of Israel and uh, preserving life and not just being rebellious. And, uh, of course, we're going to be introduced to Nabal here in a little bit after the death of Samuel and after some other things. Uh, and we're going to talk about, come back and, and visit this again. But uh, this is the struggle, is what happens when we have two-thirds of our group um, that, in their experience, are really, uh, I have to believe that Nabal's description of the group is pretty accurate because God's Word doesn't question it here. These are bitter people who are running away from paying their debts, who are in distress. Um, this is not the finest group of men, and the reputation that they bring to David um, is a bad one and it's shown that they have some fear of their former masters or whoever they have indebtedness to or whoever distressing them um, that David has to lead them out there are some noble men among them certainly um, but what do we do how do we lead this group and I think David uh, gives us a great example of how to take discontented in debt, distressed people who are fearful and then turn them around into being a body of men who are going to serve the southern Israel very well. This is only the beginning. Um, they're going to keep uh, flocks safe. They're going to be guarding the area. Uh, they're going to be taking raids into Philistine territory. They're just going to keep the whole area peaceful to, to the degree that they are allowed to by Saul's pursuits, um, they're going to try to give safety and security to this whole region as much as it depends upon them. How does David do that? How do you go from taking a bunch of uh, people described, like these 400 are described out of the 600, it wasn't all of them, but a good portion of them described this way, how do you turn them into this? And, and it's no wonder when we see later on that these people are like, hey, here's Saul. Here's your chance. You can kill him right here and now. It must be of the Lord because the opportunity is afforded to you. And if the opportunity is there, it must be God's blessing to do this. Well, no wonder he's got guys like that. I mean, if they had a chance to liquidate their debt by getting rid of the one they're indebted to, I'd think some of these guys might have thought that was of the Lord too. So how does David lead them? How do we draw ourselves away from a culture, 
an attitude and a history of rebellion and distress uh, and 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 <laughs> when they're drawn to you, how do you pull them away from that kind of attitude into David's heart? David's heart was not fundamentally rebellious. Remember, he was a righteous man being hunted for no just cause. But because he is, and it's a whole idea, well, if you're the enemy of the state and I'm the enemy of the state, we must be friends. Well, not if you think the state is your enemy. There's a great difference. But David's taken what he is given, and these people gather to him, and he is going to be their leader. They allow him to leave leadership. How do you draw them out of that rebellion? How do you draw them out of those attitudes that are fearful and that are self-serving, that are, are self-interested at least? And David, I think, gives us a great example. He goes and he says, let's find out what the Lord says. We take these men in their debt, in their distress, um, uh, we, we take them in their in their bitterness and we just lead them right along and says, okay, uh, let's find out what the Lord says. What does the Lord want? What does God want? And we keep drawing them in and it's no mistaking that once we introduce to this group of people that before David takes any action from now on, he says, let's find out what the Lord wants. Let's find out what the Lord wants. And let's follow that. And if you don't trust that, um, then you can't be under my leadership. And David's willing to even ask it a couple of times. All right, you don't trust the first time, we'll ask again. God says, you better get up there and take that. I will deliver it. You, uh, you will deliver the city. You will be able to defeat the Philistines. Uh, you obey. And he sets this precedent. He doesn't just say, we're going to do what's right um, because he's a charismatic leader and he has this and everyone looks up to him, but rather he directs everybody to this is the standard that we're going to follow. We are going to do what the Lord tells us to do. We are going to do what is righteous and what is righteous is not determined by what meets our interests. What is self-interesting is not necessarily righteous but most people think that way that's called situation ethics by the way if it serves my self-interest it's okay as long as nobody else gets hurt quote-unquote and david says no it's not how it's going to happen here we're going to ask of the lord and this is oh we're afraid why make more enemies we got to deal with these people no we don't we have to deal with the lord we have to come back to the lord and that's really what uh and if there's any passage that really struck me in my in development of this message series, it was this idea. How does David take people in this condition and develop them into a group of people that become the guardians of the land? And yeah, he's going to have to deal with some frustrating things along the way, and they're going to try to prod him to do the wrong thing but he's going to show them the right thing over and over again. And I think this is what we are called to do in church, is what kind of people are we told are going to gather to us? It's going to be people like this, who are in distress, who are bitter, who are in debt, who, who have a history. And I'd love to get a whole bunch of people coming to my church who have no history like that, who are coming in and ready to hit the ground running and serve the Lord. But the fact is, those are rare, those are few, and they are far between. 
most people are going to come to Christ have this kind of a history. And because of that, they have attitudes that are reflective of these attitudes. And those attitudes are ones of fear and of rebellion and of let's just take hold of every opportunity to to serve ourselves and then call it of the Lord. No. Let me just give an illustration. Uh, Right now in the Christian community, uh, specifically in the area of youth ministries, there is a great concern over a spirit that we see among young people. Uh, And by the way, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just that it has been uh, refined and uh, been even stronger these days of just rebelliousness against authority. And all of us see it in society. Would you agree? You, You see a general rebelliousness against authority. They just don't acknowledge authority. And it doesn't matter whether that authority is in the home or in their school or in the workplace, or in society, politically, or, or uh, in terms of police and, and fire and things like that. We just have, we see that, and we, we wring our hands in the church of a rebelliousness against authority. We wring our hands about the home, um, and, and we say, oh, how can this be, how can this be? You know, why are they rejecting God's word? Don't they understand there's a blessing if you honor your father and your mother, that your days will be long upon the earth? Uh, the first commandment given with a with a with a promise. Um, what are we missing with our children? And uh, I've engaged several people, um, including through uh, Answers in Genesis, is a big reach out to young people uh, through the creation model, and 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 their blame, of course, is that this has been refined by the evolution philosophy as refined rebellion and uh, and and. Uh, increased it in our land that that if you're just a developed animal then you why have any controls uh, the problem is is some of those very people who are trying to teach young people to respect authority in their lives in their home and in their church are the same ones who are proposing that we throw off our government who will complain of the authorities that are over them in the workplace. And as long as we uh, believe that we can say whatever we want, and some of the things I've seen Christians saying, pastors saying about our government, uh, and, and is, is really almost inciting to riot. They're inciting rebellion. They're inciting people to take up arms. Uh, they're inciting that uh, political activism and uh, it's not our message. It's not our goal. But it, when we want to incite against, to rebel against the government that God tells us to submit to, how can we really fault the children too much for realizing, well, you don't submit to the authorities that are over you. Why do I need to submit to the authorities that are over me? And we take a hypocritical place and there's nothing children recognize quicker that hypocrisy in their parents. They pick up on it, zip, like that. When they, well, you have these rules for me, but you don't follow those rules in your life. You have this that you make me, but you uh, permit yourself in that. And uh, it's no different than the (laughs) drunken parents say, I don't want to ever catch you with a drink. 
Well, that's somewhat where the Christian community comes in, where we want to say, you need to to, um, submit to your authorities when we're not willing to submit to our authorities because we don't like them. Right now in our country, we don't like the authorities that are over us. So we believe we have just cause, which is a horrible phrase, to rebel. There is never just cause to rebel. Rebellion is of the devil, it's sinful. And let me ask you this. Do you think David had just cause to kill Saul at this point? Remember what just happened in chapter 22? Chapter 22. What just happened? What did the king just do? He just had the entire priestly family murdered for no reason. If there is ever a just cause to kill your king, wouldn't that be it? He gathered up the entire high priest family and had them murdered, and one guy escapes, Abiathar. And word comes to David. And you kind of expect David, well, could be incensed that how could the king kill all of our priests? He must die. That would be a just cause, we would conclude, but not in David's heart. Because the rebellion wasn't there. There is no just cause for rebellion. There is just cause for the imprecatory psalms. Would you agree with that? (laughs) What is that? To pour it out before God and say, Lord, look at what they're doing. Get them! And that's essentially what the imprecatory psalms pray. Lord, you see their evil. You deal with them. You destroy them. And God is really good at that, by the way of doing it in just the right way and in doing it in just the right time to just the right people. God knows. In this, David, he takes some personal responsibility, but he's not going to lead these men in any form of rebellion. He is not going to join their spirit of distress, of of running away from debts that they incurred, of of, uh, embittered against their enemies. He's not embittered against Saul. He loves Saul. Saul's his king. He's going to save Saul's life on at least two occasions because his men were ready to kill the king. And they thought God would approve. In fact, they said, God has given your enemy into your hand. In the name of God, they were ready to kill their own king. If we're having that kind of attitude and speech toward the king, then guess who's the king of your family, Dad? You are. And what should you expect? You should expect that your children are going to have that exact same spirit towards you. Why wouldn't they? You have it towards your king. Why wouldn't they have it toward their king? If they don't like the decisions you're making. You see... We need to have that example. And David leads by an example. First of all, he's going to go to the Lord and say, we're going to keep going to God and saying, what does he want? And godly leadership over rebellious people is saying, let's keep going to the Bible. Keep going to the Bible. Let's keep going. What does God want? What does God tell us to do? What does God, I, let's not look, I, I don't want to follow Fox News or CNN or any of those. I'm, I'm not talking about that. And, and I don't, I'm not talking about what the world says is just or unjust. Uh, I'm asking, what does God say you should do? Well, that's pretty clear. 
but it's not a message we want to hear. And so we might have to do it a time or two, three or four times, repeatedly. And even then, it is so hard to root rebellion out. And then the second thing we must do is to lead by example. And that is that we submit to the authorities, that we demonstrate what it means to do right. And so David shows up. He sees the Philistines, the enemies of God, attacking a city of Judah. And it would be easy to just sit back and say, ha, they deserve that. After they're letting, they let the king hunt me like this. And you could just imagine the spirit. Oh, they deserve it. Right? Because they didn't back me up. They're not supporting me. No, David says, no, no, no. What does God want us to do? What is the godly, righteous thing? Let's ask the Lord. Lord, what do you want us to do? Go, go deliver the city. Do what's right. Defend my people. It's the king's job, sure. But the king isn't around right now. And you are. And you see it happening. You know what's going on. You are able. Get down there and do it. You see, it'd be really easy to say, well, that's Saul's job. That's the government's job. No. Not if God says it's your job. And this is the spirit that David presents to his men. We're going to go down there. We're going to deliver them with no expectations. No expectations at all. Um, He strikes them with a mighty blow in verse 5 of chapter 23. Took away their livestock. And David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Remember, the Philistines were attacking during the harvest. They wanted to feed their livestock with all of Israel's grain. So they brought their livestock with them on the fight. Because they assumed they'd win because the Israelites didn't really have any swords because we took them away a long time ago. Here comes this guy carrying, uh, remember what sword he's carrying? <laughs> Goliath's. David's armed with Goliath's sword. Isn't that great? The Philistine sword being used against Philistines. I think that's kind of great. But... Um, David shows up and he delivers his people. And he's leading his men into this is what honorableness is. It's about doing what God says to do. And we are not going to fight against our own people. We are not going to slay the king. We're not going to kill the people that we owe money to. We're not going to destroy the people that we're embittered against. And this is going to be a pattern for all of David's leadership. Even later on when it's Absalom and it's... uh, Oh, what's the guy's name that curses him as he leaves his Jerusalem? Shammai. Uh, Shammai. Uh, he's not going to take his vengeance out on them. He says, the Lord heard his words. And he reminds his son Solomon, yeah, don't forget those guys. If they give you any trouble, just <laughs> take them out. He leaves it to others. He's going to do what's honorable and right. And he's not going to take it out on anyone, and the one time, the one time that he almost does it, out of anger, out of the way he was treated, it was Nabal, and God intervened through a wise woman, Abigail, to come in and say, please don't do this thing. Because now you're going to be hated in the land, and that's the last thing you need on your head. Right now you have a lot of respect by everybody in Judah. Because you're doing what's right. And God intervenes through a very wise woman, Abigail, to prevent David from doing what he had just cause to do. But Abigail says, no, 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 let God take care of Nabal. And guess what? God did. So the one time David kind of forgot, God brought 
across his path a gal that reminded him of the philosophy that he's followed all his life and he's going to follow into his kingship. That I'm not going to rebel by taking matters in my own hands against the Lord. I'm going to follow God. And this is how we lead men out of a rebellious state, out of the condition where they want to, instead of paying their debts, they're going to run away. Instead of of, of uh, resolving issues, they're going to be embittered over them, uh, and they're going to just be distressed in all these manifold ways that sin does. Well, they gather to people who they think are like spirit, and they see David as a like spirit, but he wasn't. He was a radically different spirit in like circumstances. And this is what needs to be changed in the heart of people. And this is what really my focus has been through the whole thing is we need to change our heart and our attitudes that we don't carry that spirit of rebellion that is that, that frankly, our nation applauds and has applauded all the way along. Right now, there's a standoff in Nevada and, and over grazing rights on a hunk of land that, that isn't owned by the people that are grazing on it. And and people are drawing weapons on on each other. Our government, on some of our government people, and our uh, militias are being formed. And and uh, there's talk of all of of a range war. Why? Because one man thinks he has just cause. There are no just causes for rebellion. There just aren't. Not if you're a person who believes that God is God and that he is capable of delivering the righteous from the wicked and capable of judging the wicked in the day of their wickedness. So we find David leading his people And we get into chapter 24, and he shows them the best example of that. And of all the things he quotes, I want to jump to chapter 24, verse 13. I'm going to come back to it in a couple weeks. But David wants to quote a proverb of the ancients. I think that's pretty funny because we think of his sayings as ancient. He's going to quote the ancients. He says, as the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. You see, David understood that for for me to lift my hand against you, my king, is wickedness. And wickedness comes from a wicked heart. And I am not going to lift my hand against you. I will not do that act of wickedness. Because that's not where my heart is at. But when our heart is bent towards the wickedness of rebellion, why should we be surprised that the generation behind us is rebelling against us? Why should we be surprised that they rebel against authority in their life when you rebel against authorities in your life? From that wickedness proceeds the wicked. From the wicked comes the wickedness. That's where the heart is derived from. And so David leads his men into wilderness strongholds. He says, the Lord will deliver us. And yes, back in chapter 23, they get caught in another place. Um, And again, it looks like they're trapped. It looks like it's all over. Um, 
David can't get away. They, he, he's encircled. He's trapped. Saul has got him, boxed in. Um, verse 27, here comes a messenger telling Saul, the Philistines are attacking you. Come help. And so Saul has to leave them. And it says, at the end of verse 28, they called that place the Rock of Escape. And David then goes up into En Gedi. God can deliver his own. His anointed, his, his chosen ones, he can deliver, and he delivers it in multiple ways. Earlier we saw him deliver by putting Saul naked on the floor in his belly prophesying. Here he delivers David by bringing up a, a, a Philistine uh, raiding party that needs to be uh, uh, dealt with, and off goes Saul. And Saul doesn't get what he wants here because... He has his responsibilities to consider. But in the midst of all of this, David is leading these people, two-thirds of which are described in a very negative fashion. But they're going to learn from David to trust in the Lord, follow him, obey him. They're going to learn it from his references to what does God want us to do. But they're also going to learn it from his life. In the midst of all this, there's one other visitation. It's really our last visit between David and Jonathan. And with this, I'm going to close tonight. Um, and Jonathan, again, uh, as hard as it is for Saul to track down David, it's not hard for Jonathan at all. <laughs> Jonathan is able to arrange a secret meeting with David. They get together there. And whether Saul had Jonathan followed so that... but we, or not, um, certainly the Ziphites, it says, reported that David um, is in the hill country there around them because uh, they didn't want any trouble with Saul. But Jonathan comes and finds David in verse 16. Uh, Saul's son arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand to God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. And that is a very powerful statement. It, it, there's, there's a hopefulness there in Jonathan's statement that he can serve with David. He wants David to be his king. But that's not in accordance with the prophetic word of God regarding Saul's family. But in the midst of this, how does he strengthen David in the hand of God? By saying, trust the anointing that God's put on you. Trust that. You're the anointed one. I know it. Your, your family knows it. They're following you. Even the king himself that's trying to kill you knows it. He knows you're the anointed one. He knows that he's... He's making efforts uh, in, 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 in just wastedness. It's a waste of time. You will not be found by my father. And it's kind of funny because the very next phrase says that Saul finds him. But that's not good enough. You are secure as the anointed one of God, as the chosen one. And you will be king 
You will not be taken. Um, and even your enemy knows it. Does our enemy, the one who calls us their enemy, know our future? Do they know that this world isn't our home? Does the statements and the behavior and the activity of Christians in this country today communicate to everyone around us in society where our hope lies? Does it communicate effectively what is really our future? Does it communicate who we're trusting in? As we talked this morning, what are you trusting in? Everything David is going to do communicates that he's going to do what's right. He's not going to take matters into his own hands. He's not going to run ahead of God. Um, that he knows he has a future, and his future strengthens him. There is no reason to be fearful. We don't need to be afraid. Even when the government calls us its enemy, we don't need to be afraid of that government. God put it there. God knows what's going on. We're his chosen ones. We're his saints, his children. And the question has to be, do our enemies, based upon their knowledge of who we are, remember, Saul started getting these ideas that this is the anointed one by watching David's behavior. That David was honorable. That David that David did his duty. That David uh, was blessed. Do our enemies see in us that we have a sure future? That they can't stop. They can't interfere with. They can't prevent. Do they know that about you? That you have a future that the greatest enemy on earth can't prevent? That's a powerful message Jonathan gives David to encourage him. You can be strong in the Lord. You're safe no matter how unsafe it seems. Your future is secure because of who promised it. And that's what we have. Our future is secure. Do our enemies know it? By the way we live our lives, do our enemies know that we have a secure future? Or do we walk around just as worried as the next people about the economy and about the state of affairs in our society and about the condition of our schools and about, about uh, whether police officers are shooting us randomly? You know, are, are we walking around with the same concerns as if this place is our future? Or do we show a different spirit so that even our enemies know their future is pretty secure and they're confident in it and it's going to happen? Because this is not their home. They are not in rebellion and they're not fearful. Because they have something much better waiting for them that they're hoping for and living for and willing to die for. And this has been the testimony that has impacted society after society when they watched Christians face horrific treatment, even death, torture, with joy because they had a secure future that no one could take away. And this the New Testament calls us to. We should be more than conquerors because... What can come against us? If Christ be for us, who can be against us? Why have fear? I'm not afraid of the future. My future is secure in Jesus Christ. The process of getting there, I'm going to have iniquity at my heels all the time. Yeah, that's okay. That's the reality of this world. 
I can't be afraid of being a little uncomfortable. The question is, can I maintain a heart that is righteous? Because if it becomes wicked, then guess what's going to proceed out of that wicked heart? Wicked actions. And rebellion in any form, even if you think you have just cause for it, is wrong. And that's true for our children in the home. Even if you think your parents are wrong, you think you have just cause to disobey them, you're wrong. Rebellion is always wickedness. Always. Always. At work, you think you have just cause not to do what the boss says. Rebellion is always wickedness. In the military, even if the commanding officer is wrong, you're trained. What's your duty? Your duty is to follow him in the battle. And they write poems about guys that are willing to do that. There goes the 600. Going into battle. When they know that their officers made a mistake and they're all going to die. Because it's honorable. The most honorable thing we do is to submit to authorities in this world. Not easy thing to do. Sometimes very costly. But it is highly honored and it is no wonder that God's first commandment with a promise is honor your father and mother. Not if they're right or wrong, honor them, period. Because no rebellion is ever righteous. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us and thank you for the testimony message of David and dealing with men that had a history of doing wrong and wanting to turn them to follow him in doing what's right. Lord, help us to, like him, to follow your word, to ask of you how we ought to live, and to follow what you declare in your word uh, to be just exactly how we should live, to walk in your spirit. And Lord, help us to be examples to those around us of true submission in righteousness, that we might rescue souls from the ultimate penalty for rebellion, and that is death, eternal punishment. So Lord, we thank you for those in authority over us. We pray for them. Lord, some of them are doing wickedly, and you know it. And Lord, we pray that if they do not change their ways and follow after you with all their heart, mind, and soul, that you might judge them as only you can. Lord, we feel powerless against these authorities. And really, in our own strength, we are. But you are not. And so, Lord, we pray that you might remember their wickedness in the day of your judgment. That you might preserve your people as you have always done for that day of deliverance. That we might stand with those of the redeemed who have trusted not in their wealth, who have trusted not in the mob and the sword, but have trusted in your Son, Jesus Christ. 
in your deliverance. Lord, preserve us to that day. That we might walk before men here as those who have a future secure. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.